film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. Welcome to In Frequencies, a series of podcasts by the ICA. My name is Nicholas Ruffin and I'm the film program manager here at the ICA. You're about to listen to a conversation that was recorded on Friday, 7 January 2022 in the Cinema One of the ICA, which followed a preview of Memoria by Apishat Pongvera Setakul prior to its UK release by Sovereign Films. Memoria won the jury prize at the Cannes Festival in 2021 following a Palme d'Or that Apishat Pong won for Uncle Bonmi back in 2010. Tilda Swinton, who is in conversation today, is the main character of Apichat Pong Verastekou's work, who are both also very big supporters of the ICA. In fact, Apichat Pong, who is also known as Jory, as you will hear soon, also gave an introduction to the film, a very short one that you will listen to. The work of Apichat Pong has been screening at the ICA since his first works in the early 2000s. This event also preceded a season that Apichat Pong co-curated with us at the ICA, which took place between the 22nd and 30th of January, later in the months after this discussion. Apichatpong's visual language, as well as the politics and aesthetics of his body of work, are being discussed in this conversation. This conversation with Stella Swinton and the introduction with Apichatpong are both hosted by Simon Field. Simon Field is the producer of Apichatpong's film and work in general, and he was also the director of cinema at the ICA in the 1990s, at a time during which ICA was known for championing works coming from the Asian continent. In this conversation, Tilda Swinton and Simon Field discuss their collaboration, the specificities of shooting in Colombia, where the film is set, and the importance of cinema as a shared space for discovery. This event preceded a season that Apichat Pongvera Setakul co-created with us at the ICA, later in the month of January 2022. And this season was very unique because it was an assemblage of three films that Abhishek Pong picks that are not from his body of work and three films from Abhishek Pong. Abhishek Pong wrote the following notes that I'm going to read now about this season, which I think provide important context on Memoria and like on his inspiration for the film. Memoria is a kind of animal that thrives in the dark, the cave, the cinema or in dreams. It shares the same spirit as my past works made in Thailand and have selected three of them to celebrate the release of Memoria. Uncle Bonme, who can recall his past lives, which is a film that won the Palme d'Or in Cannes, is a memory of a bygone time, and it was shown at the ICA on 35mm. Mekong Hotel is a lullaby for the river of generations, and Cemetery of Splendor is a farewell to home. There are paths towards the reflection in memoria that of the shared consciousness behind borders and time. I have chosen to accompany them with the three mysteries that vibrate around the new film. I Walk with Zombie by Jack Turner, The Conversation and Pure Blood. They are the works that to me associate with the unknown. The selection of films represent Apichat Pong's fascination with the unknown. In fact, Apichat Pong hasn't seen Pure Blood by Louis Spina when he picked it as part of the season. This fascination is very much present in Memoria when he went to Colombia to shoot on an unknown land and without a script, or without a very precise script, as discussed with Tilda Swinton in the conversation you're about to hear. Memoria is available on VOD and on Blu-ray and DVD, and um, I hope you enjoy the conversation. 
Afternoon, Joey. Um, we've just Afternoon. had a screening of, of Memoria. Um, and I'm going to be talking to Tilda here in the Q&A in the ICA for this special preview. Um, and I thought it would be appropriate just to ask you uh, a few things about working with Tilda, really by way of introduction uh, to that conversation that I'm going to have with her. Okay, sure, sure. Good evening to you, everyone. And uh, here I'm speaking, you know, from Thailand. Uh, I wish I could be there, but at that time, uh, it would be like 3 a.m. in Thailand. So unfortunately, I need to, to sleep and dream. So yeah, so it's a pleasure to share this film with you and you know, and a pleasure to talk with you, Simon. I thought it would be a good idea to, to talk a little bit, as I say, about working with Tilda. Um, how long ago, when, when, when did you first meet her? And did you always want to have the idea of working with her? Uh, I had no idea. I, we had no idea too, I think. that She said that, you know, she discovered the film Tropical Malady in Cannes, that was 2004. And, and so we point that time as a meeting, but I think it, it physically, you know, I think we met in London with you, Simon, but I actually don't remember uh, when, it's at the lobby of the hotel, right? Yeah, it could, could be the case. I don't particularly remember either. <laughs> so, yeah, one of the things that I was curious about was that there was a coincidence between your working with Tilda and the first film that you were to make outside Thailand. Um, is that a coincidence or was it something that the two things were, were important, as it were? I don't think so because I I feel like I wanted to work with her way before, you know, um, during the drafting of Cemetery of Splendor, right? In, I think, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, something is, she's already there in the script, but it was in Thai, Thailand. So I didn't feel that uh, somehow it, it didn't work for me. Uh, so I think part of the drive to shoot outside of Thailand, maybe come to think of it must be her as well, you know, uh, coupled with the need to, to go out with the situation here and to, to challenge myself and to, you know, find a new place. So, yeah. And uh, I mean, was it you? You nearly always work with with your actors, people who you know well or know personally. Um, was that the case with Tilda? The, part of the inspiration to work with her, of knowing her, uh, but also, what were you thinking? What was it about her character or her personality that you felt you could create a whole film around? Mm, this friendship and I always feel comfortable with her because she 
I knew that she would try anything, you know, uh, knowing her, working with her for film festival in Thailand and meeting her over the years. Um, she had this spirit of, you know, can do. And, and I think I need that in, in Colombia, in, in the place I don't understand the language and culture. Uh, like, hey, we are in this boat together. <laughs> uh, it's a great companion. Yeah, and she she was and she has been, yeah. Could you say a little bit, um, before I go on to talk to Tilda herself and get a take on this, um, about how the collaboration worked when you were, when you were filming? I mean, mm. Well, before the filming and with the script or something, it's like working with you, Simon, and other producers, you know, you just, gave me freedom so I've just explore really happily you know with the script with the logistic everything um, with the Colombian producer Diana and doing the shooting that the product pre-production with Tilda and John and other actors um, they started to give me hint of what the film might be. Uh, still, we explored together. And, you know, even though I had a script, but I tended to, to make it really open and, and the film didn't really arrive until, until in the editing room in the sound design, you know, so, so the process in Colombia was, was one thing, you know, just a little more solidified, you know, the idea. And, and each day, especially with Tilda, it was just discovering this woman and this land and this light. Um, it's hard to say, but, but it's like when I was in, first in Colombia in 2017, just to listen and to, to try to synchronize with with my emotion and what's there, you know, in the nature, the architecture, and the stories of the people. And making the film is like tracing or retracing those feelings again, and, and, and now try to capture it on film. Yeah, so it's really special um, time and, and, you know, just, just magic and it, it actually, resurrected my my belief or my joy of filmmaking again. <laughs> That's a wonderful note on which to uh, to end um, and uh, for me to move into talking to Tilda and get her side of the story. So thank you very much uh, for being with us, Joey. And I hope that sometime soon, uh, who knows when, we'll see you back in London. Thank you. Um I hope so too, <laughs> yeah. I should first of all apologize for the ham on the right there, but um, um, Joey um, spoke beautifully as usual. Um, before, um, just to explain my own position on this film before, um, I mean, I think I should say immediately, of course, Tilda needs a little introduction here. Um, I was, I've been involved with Joey's films uh, since 
uh, Uncle Bunmi, uh, working with Keith Griffiths at Illuminations Films, um, and we've been producing on those films. Um, on this particular film, the situation changed, which is why we're descri I'm describing, we're described here as executives, in the sense that, and Joey mentioned her, we went out to find a wonderful Colombian producer, Diana Bustamande, and she, as I imagine Tilda will talk about her, um, led the production. So our job was more um, helping to her to, with the raising of the finance, but she ran the whole project in Colombia. Um, so maybe, uh, Tilda, I can start with um, a sort of anecdote, um, which is going back to 2017. Um, and I sent you an email uh, in which I explained that Joey had just returned from Colombia um, and he had a script and he had a project um, and could we meet in Cannes to talk about the projects. And you sent me back, and I, unfortunately I couldn't find it, um, and I don't think it was a WhatsApp. You sent me a very brief message which said, at last! <laughs> and I, I suppose, got a sense then that was, it was a com of sort of frustration that finally and enthusiasm at the same time. So I wondered if you could, going on from what Joey was saying, talk a little bit about the desire to work with him and how much you'd worked, thought about it together. Well, I have to say straight, straight off the bat that in that at last would never have been frustration because... Um, I, I, one of the things I've learned is uh, in making work uh, a long gestation is never a bad thing, it, never a bad thing. And it may go on for longer than this one. It may go on for more than 20 years. Um, but when the time comes to shoot, you're always so relieved that you had that fifth year when you found a location or that 19th year when you found a performer who was suddenly old enough to play a part or whatever. You never regret any minute of your pre-production, your development, even though it can be very frustrating for, for the filmmaker. It's never frustrating for me, but enthusiasm for sure. I'd met Joey, as he said, as most of us have to do, uh, through his film, uh, in this case, Tropical Malady in Cannes. And then we became... It's, I love the fact that none of us can remember when we all met. Um, uh, I certainly can't remember when we met in the flesh. I sort of feel I, I've always known Joey, but I met him through Tropical Malady, and then we became... Um, I think I wrote something about him. I think that's what happened. And then he wrote to me... He wrote an email to me having read it. And then we just became correspondents. We became pen pals. And uh, quite quickly said that we... Must, we must make a piece of work together. That was it, okay. And then five years later, <laughs> well, what is this piece of work going to be? And it became clear to both of us fairly fast that it wouldn't be me in Thailand. And he described this. Yeah, I didn't even realize until quite recently that he had me in the frame for a while in, in Cemetery of Splendor. I was always clear that I didn't want to pop up in Thailand in some sort of slightly stuntish way 
I, I, I was very, very uh, clear about that, if, if nothing else. And so we, we agreed that we wanted to find a place that, where both of us were strangers. Because I think the first agreement that we had, well, the first agreement was that we wanted to make a piece of work together. The second agreement was that we wanted to make a film about an atmosphere. Way before there was any question of what the narrative might be, or if there would be narrative at all, it was about the atmosphere. And the atmosphere was to be about being lost, was about being so discombobulated, but at the same time connected, not disconnected, but, but deeply connected through being lost. And that then, it became clear to us, then maybe we would be able to achieve that best in a place that neither of us knew. And if we were both equally strangers, that would be good for us, so that we would be like, you know, those start right kids walking, walking up a road together, not, not knowing what we were doing, which is a good place to start. And then he went to the Cartagena Film Festival and wrote to you, clearly, who then wrote to me and said, it's Colombia. And uh, I went to Cartagena soon after that and went, yeah, I get it. And by then, of course, we knew Diana Bustamante, who is the person who made it all possible. So Colombia was the, the third partner, even before Diana. But it was Colombia. We needed Colombia. We needed the place and the resonance of Colombia to be in, to strike the note of this lostness. Do you think it could have happened in another country, or is it...? Yeah. Mm. I mean, the truth is, I think this resonance, this sort of traumatic vibration that we were looking for, is pretty much everywhere, let's face it. I mean, it's certainly in this country. And it's certainly in the country that I live in, Scotland. I mean, you don't turn a corner without, uh, you know, treading on bloody ground. Uh, it's just a question of whether the culture is, carries it. And, and Colombia really carries it. And one of the things that's so, so sad is that we made that film two years ago and we thought we were making a film about the traumatic resonance of the past. But actually, as, as has become clear last year, was it? deeply traumatic and violent year for Colombia. So it, it actually, going back, we took the film back there in November and, and showed it in Bogota and, and in Pijal, where we, we shot it, the small town where we shot it. And uh, it was, it's like a documentary uh, at the moment because uh, people have been living very presently with this kind of vibration of violence. But yeah, I think, I think it's just that Colombia was the first the first uh, place that we sort of hit on. That, that and that he with. really responded to yeah. as well because yeah, he went on a special artistic um, project yeah. there, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that I, I'm very emphatic about um, is that this, this is not his first film in English. Um, that it's a Spanish language film. It's also a Colombian film. It was nominated for the Oscars and that. Um, tell us a little bit about, for both of you in a way, uh, the situation of the language um, and th that process, if you like. Well, again, I think that it, w it was part of this um, uh, isolating Jessica um, to, to put her in this situation where language is sort of, you know, only, only so useful. 
and she doesn't really speak it. I mean, I, which is lucky because I don't speak Spanish at all. Uh, it was a sort of happy coincidence that. Um, but this feeling of, of the urge or the need, the, the effort to communicate being one part of the narrative, but not the most important part. The most important part is about her relationship with the inside of her head and to a certain extent the inside of her heart and her ears and, 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 her, and her eyes. But there's this feeling of her relationship to other beings, uh, even dogs, is a sort of secondary uh, tranche, I think, in the film. And, and I have to confess, I'm always one for uh, the vagaries of language and the, in the difficulties of communicating, the, the way in which even in a similar language, we're supposed to be both speaking the same language right now, but the, you know, I'm, I'm still not clear I'm making any sense at all. That feeling of effort and that feeling of inarticulacy and that feeling of, of, of still trying is something very moving for me in cinema uh, always, and very much in Joey's cinema, which is a, such a sensational place to be. It's not really a, a cinema that's driven by language that much. So we really met in this lovely, fragmentary, rather sort of poor pot of the Spanish. It was, an, it was, a, it was a nice, it was like a sort of you know, orphan child in the middle of us, you know, that needed to be fed occasionally, but it was never going to come to much. Uh, and, uh, because he, he doesn't, he speaks very little Spanish as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Even less than me, I think. <laughs> but how did it work with the crew, for instance, and the... Um, well, we made this film with the most extraordinarily cineastic, young, mainly Colombian crew, but, but uh, I mean, there were about three Thai... Uh, filmmakers, one person from Scotland and uh, uh, somebody from, um, a couple of people from Mexico, somebody from, I think, uh, Ecuador and everybody else was, was, was Colombian. Very young, super, like, educated, cineastically educated, and of course, uh, tr at least trilingual. So um, we, to one's we muddled through, <laughs> of course. One of, uh, I had a um, a fascinating conversation um, in Cannes with the actor who plays Hernan, the older man, Elkan Diaz. And he, who's a, a, a pretty high profile, as is the other young actor, plays a uh, profile actors in, <coughs> excuse me, in, in Colombia, but mainly to do with melodramas and series and whatever. And it was extraordinary to, to hear him talking about the way that he had been um, directed by Joey to completely reduce very drastically, in his case, with, with some challenge, uh, the sort of gestures that he was used to, to make. And um, I, you've also, I mean, you haven't said, but Joey is, you've have said of conversations between the two of you, that you were talking about the, your character moving as if it, underwater. So was there a sort of parallel slowing for all the cast in that sense? Yes, I think, I mean, you know, Joey, as, as even tonight, you know, talks about dream in a very practical way. He, he, he thinks about dream as a, as a sort of constant resource. And, I, and in, in, in the, the films also, I think he really relies on, on a dreamscape. And, and that means 
not just the narrative of dream where somebody might suddenly refer to someone who died last year as having walked down the street or whatever, but also this sense of having being on a wavelength and suddenly realizing that you might be the only person on that wavelength. I think that that scenario is something that when I look back at his previous work, I think that's always been there, this feeling of a kind of refracted sensibility. And in terms of performance, in terms of our presence, all of us, myself, Juan Pablo, and Elkin, and Jan, all of us, um, were, you know, we all knew his work and we all could kind of sense the lie of the land. Um, but even the more socialized, even the, the, the people who were playing more socialized uh, parts were asked to um, behave. You know, there's not much acting going on. It's, and, and there's a lot of improvisation, by the way. Um, uh, so people are actually required to turn up to the moment of the action or, in fact, Joey doesn't like saying action. I think he just says, and, 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 and on you go. Um, it's interesting that he doesn't like action. Yeah, there's not much action, I suppose. But anyway, um, there's this feeling of a sort of slipping into, I was the one who said underwater. There's a sort of slipping down into a different state. And you have to remember that these takes are very long. So there's this sensibility of a real immersion in the moment. You have the frame set up, which you're very, if you're me, it's very important to know what that frame is. You know, it goes from that lamppost to that dog, and it has this shop and this shop and this shop in the frame, and I'm going to be that size in the frame. That's very important to know, and then to understand the speed with which you're going to traverse this frame. Um, but once you're immersed, you're very free, and all of us were required, therefore, to be very alive and, and, and very undramatic. I, more than the others, because I was, um, you know, Jessica is so solitary and so unsocialized, um, was, was really, and I'm very happy about this because I'm a very idle individual and it was very, really suits me, was required to do pretty much nothing. <laughs> um, and that's uh, sometimes an effort and sometimes, most of the time, pure grace. But all of us, I think, uh, 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 and Elkin, you know, those, I mean, Juan Pablo also, is a, you know, he works in the theatre quite a bit and is required to do quite a lot of quite high-level kind of amazing acting. And he was not required to do any of it here. Just be really great. <laughs> I mean, th that obviously, I mean, the everybody will have just seen those extraordinary scenes at the end of the film um, which certainly when I've seen the film resulted in an extraordinary silence in the auditorium, concentration I mean it would be interesting to hear you talking about continuing your thoughts that you've just mentioned in relation to those that scene at the end when you and Elkin are just at the table and nothing, nothing's happening Yeah. well a lot's happening of course well, those two scenes with Elkin, the one by the river and the one in the house, uh, they were the sort of Everest. We knew always that we were heading for those scenes. I mean, even years before, when, when Joey did start to put together a, a narrative. And just to, just to say in parenthesis, um, 
when we, having decided the atmosphere, having decided the country, having decided the history of the trauma, etc., um, this narrative slowly started to take shape. And one of the first elements was Joe having experienced uh, exploding head syndrome himself. So that got sort of bedded in, that that was going to be, we thought that this was useful because this would be an explanation or a sort of ground for why this woman would be so lost. And then as time went on, I also experienced, because it went on for so long that I experienced two bereavements, um, which we fed in, <laughs> shamelessly. But this feeling of narrative stopping was something that I was very interested in, in terms of bereavement. And so that was very useful to the nourishment of this feeling of being lost. But as we developed the narrative over the years, we always knew that it was going to end up in this place, in that house, and then with the last frames of the now you know, so I don't have to keep it a secret. But, you know, this, this spaceship, that was where we were heading. That was the North Star, and we knew we were going to get there. Um, and we didn't necessarily know how. But we knew that it was going to be an enormous challenge because we knew that we were going to be in the house in one big take of maybe 15, I think 17 minutes. And that is a challenge because having said everything I said about freedom and immersion and underwater, it's a chunk of change, 17 minutes, because you can really fuck it up. You know, around about minute seven. Uh, it's, not, it's not as easy as it might look. And so we, we knew we were heading there. But the other great challenge of that, to be technical about it, is that we knew that the great jewel, the great treasure of that scene was going to be the sound. And we didn't have it. We, that came much later. And so we had to imagine what that might be. So having made a film almost entirely in a sort of very responsive way, where we were, you know, if a bird came into the shot, we would look at it in a very loose and very um, vibrational way. This was actually quite technically constructed, this last scene. We had to have a clear idea in our minds of what the sounds might be because Elkin and I had to coordinate our reactions. So we had to kind of, I can't actually remember how we did it, but we had to figure out, oh, so this is the moment when the rain is going to start outside and we're going to look out the window and there's going to be no rain. And then this is the moment when the voices are going to start. And um, I really can't remember how we did it, but it was quite meticulous. And being meticulous over 17 minutes, was, was, was a, that was a, a piece of work. Was was the uh, I mean one of the great wonders of the film I think is the work on sound mm. and was that something that was always there in discussions through the whole film that Joey wanted that to be yeah crucial well anyone who knows his work knows how important the soundscape is but this this is actually narratively incredibly important I mean it is about sound it's about someone's not just their ears, but it's about um, it's about the ability to respond to some kind of vibration, whether it's from outside or from inside. And that the tenuousness of that is very much the material of the film. Uh, so yeah, it, we, we always knew that the sound... And that meant that when we were shooting any sound, whether it was a dog suddenly barking 
we were all very aware, or if there was, you know, a car, we were all very aware. It sort of really sharpened us up. Um, and, and then at the end, of course, those, those sounds aren't even there, but they are for the audience, but we, we, we had to imagine a sort of complete explosion of sound. Yeah. One other thing, I only visited the, the set once um, for a week, I think it was, in, in Bogota. Uh, but one of the things that I was very struck by was the was your involvement and the, I think I can't remember if this is the precise word, but uh, you were speaking as a collaboration between the two of you in the making of the film. Um, and I, I raised that a little bit with Joey in that clip there. Um, I mean, is that how you you see it? Well, probably you see it with with many directors, or is this very particular with Joey that? It's this way in which you can work together, creating the film. It, it is, it is, I mean, I love to work with people. I'm not, I'm not much, I don't tend to work by myself, but I, but with Joey it is particularly enmeshed, I would say. And, and, you know, the thing, I mean, I have some friends here who are musicians, and I'm so looking forward to asking them afterwards about, about this, but it, to me, this is, this is a musical. <laughs> I mean, it truly is, and, I, and, I, and very often when we were talking about movement, it felt like we were talking about dance. That, you know, even a scene like uh, the scene I describe when I'm walking through the nights with a dog behind me, I mean, it felt very much the kind of attention to detail that I was asking of myself was, I kept noticing, ha, huh, this is the kind of attention you would only use if you were putting together a piece of dance. It's, it's about... Uh, a sort of balance with sound and with the way in which one covers space in a certain amount of time and the rhythm within the frame, all of that stuff. And that was worked out absolutely hand in love with Joey. That was something that we, we found together. And what we would do is, quite practically, is, you know, we would set up the shot. And then, <laughs> and then I've never thought of this before, but it just occurred to me, I was just thinking, how do I describe this? And I thought, it's like two children looking into a pond. We would just lean over the, the, the um, monitor as if there was something already there and look for it. And, and then we would both see it. We'd sort of say, oh, I see what she does in this scene. She goes up this hill and then she jumps on a table and then she runs down the other side and you know, gets on a speedboat or whatever. That feeling of looking for the film that already had been shot. Um, but we both saw it together, and I don't think we ever really did anything that the other one did, hadn't seen already either. So there was this real feeling of, of, of it. It was like a dance together. Did you do many takes in, of each scene? Or? Not a lot, but not a little either. I mean, Joey's um, way of... Having said what I've said about our sort of dance and our jamming together, his response to every take was absolutely clear and critical. And if he had seen it, we would move on. And if he hadn't seen it, and sometimes he couldn't quite explain why it wasn't there, we would go again. And sometimes... There were several. For example, uh, whenever I see the film now, I remember that the scene in the dining room in the restaurant with the family. I mean, when I look at that 
shot. I mean, it's a shot. The whole scene is one shot. And there's, you know, three adults and a waiter and a child and bangs and God knows what, and improvised dialogue. And it's a real, like, cornucopia of stuff. And suddenly it does come together, but we did it quite a lot. I think we did that for a day, that shot. But it does come together in the end. It's, a, it's again, uh, I can only think of it in terms of dance or in a piece of music just coming together. You've got all these different instruments and, and then suddenly this magic moment and everybody just hits the right, the right um, vibration. One of the things I, I would like to do, actually, is give a plug to a book about Memoria, which um, includes a lot of the research materials uh, that Joey had, fragments of script, location photos. Um, there's a piece by you in it, a long into, uh, discussion, not discussion, sorry, a, a long description of the shooting days. Uh, it's a very wonderful book, and the reason I'm giving it a plug uh, is it because its signed copies are available in the bookshop. It's £45, but it's a bargain, I can tell you. <laughs> but I also want to use that to, 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 be, to make a question, um, which is, when you look at the book, it's very clear that there are an enormous number of scenes that were shot that didn't end up in the film. Yeah. And so I'm curious about uh, what your response was, would be, is to, you know, seeing a cut and then knowing that there's an enormous amount of material that is not there. Um, well, there were, uh, the other wonderful thing about that book is this, <coughs> that you do really see, you do, you are able to trace through the development of Joey's ideas about not just the material but the actual narrative. And there's all sorts of stuff in there that there isn't even a trace of in the film. But it's always the case. I mean, I'm in the very fortunate position of being able to see early cuts of things. I, mainly because I love it and my colleagues, you know, I just wear them down and say, can I be in the editing room because I love that bit so much. This I saw relatively late, I think. And there's always this moment when you have to try and forget all those scenes. And now I've forgotten them. I can't even remember whether they were shot at all or whether I just imagined them <laughs> so I've sort of you know I've drunk the Kool-Aid it's a good book I'm, I'm plugging it now myself but it, 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 it does have a sort of uh, it is a sort of working document of Joe's he's very open about he's got all these little sketches and he's, there's all this stuff in there there's 17 years worth or however long it was of development in there so you can sort of trace through how this stuff kind of distilled down I mean what it, what it also does is give a very good impression of uh, the amount of research, the number of conversations, the way he felt his way into the country mm. over a long period of, of time. Mm. And his, I mean, it's true also of his films about Thailand, of course, in the way in which he's able to put it in a simple way, to capture the spirit of a, of a country as an outsider, but recognizing that he's an outsider, but at the same time, Really, and I'm very curious, and I hope uh, people in the audience will be as well, to hear about the occasion when you and Joey went to Colombia for the premiere. 
you had screenings in Bijou and uh, Cali and uh, Bogota. But the reason I'm curious about this is that one of the things that we always wondered, I suppose, when the film was being made, was what the response would be from Colombians mm -hmm. to the film. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could, before, and in a moment I'll open it up to the audience, but wondered as, as a final thing, you could tell us a little bit about the response, because I think it was very emotional. Well, it's something that Joe and I are <coughs> extraordinarily proud of, and, and all of us, in fact, uh, um, that, that the film has been taken up in Colombia as a Colombian film which is pretty rich when you think that he's from Thailand and I'm from Scotland. But it really means something to us. I mean, I'm not a great believer in nationalism anyway, but nationalism in art seems to be a complete waste of, of, of what we're dealing with and, and a bit of a blind alley. But we did know that there was or there is a relationship in Colombia between uh, people from other places coming and, and making films about Colombia that are deal in all sorts of noxious stereotypes and I think this is the first film out of Colombia our Colombian co colleague said it's the first film out of Colombia even made by Colombians that doesn't have any mention of drugs um, <laughs> that was that was something but I think we will never forget taking the film back in uh, in whenever it was uh, September it was extraordinary and we took it back to the town Pihau the little town where we shot where I, Jan and I sat in the, and, and ate arepas in the street with the dogs beside us. And it was raining when we showed it, and we had a blow-up cinema in the square, and hundreds of people just stood in the rain and watched it, the whole thing. And this is no, Bruce Willis isn't in this film, you know. And, we, and they stood, and they watched this film, and they, a lot of them are in it, but there was no giggling particularly. They really, really loved it, and they really thanked us for it. They felt very seen, and the same in Bogota. They loved the film, and you know, then there was this extraordinary moment when countries have to put forward their films to the American Academy, you know, to be claimed as a national film. And Colombia chose this film as their film they wanted to give into the Oscars and I don't know it, it's that meant so it wasn't just a relief but it was more than we'd expected that it would be claimed in that way as a Colombian film which means again means that all the the idea of nationality in film is complete nonsense it, it's like you know I was talking earlier today about I know where I'm going which is one of my favorite films of all time by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger which I always say is the great Scottish film made by an Englishman and a Hungarian it, you know, it, it doesn't mean anything. It means it's possible to, to see something or to feel something and to, to have your eyes open, your ears open, your heart open to an atmosphere in a place and just put it down and not try and, you know, warp it into some kind of narrative that you've heard before. And that, that was, I mean, the response of the public was to feel that the atmosphere was totally... Recognisable. They yeah. said they'd never seen Bogota look like Bogota before. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a really, really humbling thing to hear. Let's open it up. So, David, could we lower the lights a bit so that we can see when people are waving hands? And we have, I guess, about, about ten minutes or something like that. So, yes, there's, there's somebody here. I was just wondering if I could get your opinion on the distribution of the film and the decision to sort of tour it 
rather than go into sort of a wide release, which I don't imagine a film like this would ever get, but unfortunately, but I just thought I'd be interested in your opinions on, on that decision. Can I just, before Tilda uh, um, replies, can I just do a clarification, um, which is that there seems to be a sense that the distribution pattern that has been proposed and is being activated in the US um, will apply to the film in all countries. That's not at all the case. Um, I mean, I think certainly here, um, the film opens next week uh, and will run, hopefully, for a long time in many cinemas around the country. Um, so that, in just in case some people don't know, uh, the neon model is that the film will, will go from uh, what has just been in New York very successfully in one cinema, then uh, I think a week later or sometime later, it'll go to Chicago for another week, then on uh, just in this very controlled way uh, between cities with the uh, description or the proposal that it would never be on digital, never available digitally. Whether this will be the case, we don't know. Um, but this actually interestingly delights Joey um, because He's passionate about the fact that it's, um, it's, a, it's a sound film, it's a cinema film, it celebrates cinema like you've seen it, and he's very happy that that should be an emphasis on that in the neon run. But it's only, as far as I'm aware, it only applies to the US. Sorry, I hogged this mic. No, no, you, you haven't at all. And I think that's really important to clarify. It is, uh, it's a proposal. Um, I think in many ways that's up to all of us, really, how it, how it rolls out, literally. I'm delighted by Neon's um, nerve, because it does take nerve. You know, it's a, they're literally putting their money where their mouth is. And th by the way, the mouth is something that I, both Joey and I, as advocates of big cinema, have, have been on about for years and years. And so for our film to be given this extraordinary privilege of... of, of, of going out only on big screens uh, is, is a wonderful thing. Um, I mean, for me, it's, um, it's a really easy sort of algorithm. I mean, none of us think anything of buying a ticket to a band a year in advance and sticking it under a fridge magnet and looking at it for months and crossing the days off our calendar and going to that gig and loving the hell out of it. Nobody thinks twice about that, it's an event. And I don't see any reason why a film, actually almost any film, but let's say this film, that this, a film like this, with this event vibe, you know, shouldn't be accorded that kind of uh, thrill and excitement for people. Um, we, we think nothing of that, and by the way, I think the same is true in general about big cinema. We think nothing with music of getting to know an album really, really, really well. Just because you know an album really, really, really well doesn't mean you're not going to go and see that band when it comes to your town or that you're not going to travel to another town to see that band play live. I think the idea that you might first see a film uh, at the end of your bed on your laptop, know it really well, love it, when it then comes to a big cinema near you, you're probably going to go and see it. You're not going to say, oh, I've seen it. I'm not going to go and see it live. I think we need to just switch up our evaluation of big cinema. It's so important. It's so wonderful. 
and we need to really treasure it. And a, a, and a, and a decision like this by Neon, and I do hope that, uh, that, that other distributors with other films will have the nerve to make the same decision. Um, I, I hope that they, they feel this applause in other audiences and, and feel the lust for it. And, and, that, and that the streamers don't feel threatened by it. I mean, why would the streamers need to feel threatened anyway? They're making so much money as it is. What they need to do is to put all that money or a great deal of it into buying, building, renovating big cinemas all over the world where they reach and just, you know, develop the two alongside each other. You know, we're going to be able to watch films. Well, some people can watch films on their, on their wrists right now. Um, we certainly can watch them on the back of, of, of the airplane seats. It's, it, you know, it doesn't have to be just one thing. But I think it's thrilling. I think it's a challenge. It's a provocation. And as long as there's the lust and the verve in audiences, uh, it's going to be a really interesting um, thing to see roll out. So um, just listening to uh, the explanation and divining the the creative process, it's, it's mind-blowing to me because everything, particularly the performances, felt so natural. Um, so what I'd like to know is, is anything in the final cut improvised? So was, was any improvisation, did it make it into the final cut? Yeah. Now you're going to ask me where. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, off the top of my head, the dining room scene, the, the, the restaurant scene that I just described was, well, it was an interesting combination of orchestrated, because, for example, those bangs had to come at a certain moment, and they didn't happen on the soundtrack because the other actors didn't hear it. So I had to know when they were coming. So I had my own little sort of track running with a series of cues, I think, visual cues. But the actors, Agnes and Daniel, were improvising. They knew what they were going to be talking about, but they didn't necessarily say the same thing every time. And they just riffed. And I came in at a certain different time every take, and sometimes I kissed the boy's head first, and sometimes I said a little something to him. And I can't remember, but anyway, it was sort of loose. It was like a sort of crystal bowl with quite precise cuts in it, but it was filled with a kind of quite loose water, if that makes any sense at all. There's a film following this, so we're on a bit of a tight schedule, but I think we certainly have time for at least one more question. Hello, and thank you both. I'm just really curious what your relationship is to dreaming and whether that changed at all through the process of making this film. That's a great question. Um, I have to confess, I haven't dreamed really very much for ages. I don't know about anybody else, but I didn't dream at all since the pandemic started. Um, really not, I mean, a couple, a couple of dreams. I think I've been sleeping more. But I value dreaming as a sort of reality. And I, I value the, the mechanism not only of dreaming, but the kind of narrative that unfolds in dream. Like, for example, again, we're back to that restaurant scene, but that thing of saying, that guy that you said was coming to visit you in hospital, he died last year, and somebody else saying, no, he hasn't. That sort of, what? That sort of glitch that you get in dreams, I find really interesting for narrative, that the moment when 
you feel that none of the accord that you think you were able to rely on between you and other people is reliable at all and that you are off on your own planet. And I think that's something that I've always valued in dream and look for in narrative and use in film. I think, uh, I mean, film is a sort of dreamscape. Joey and I have, have both talked a lot, quite a lot about that, that a film is an alternate reality. And, and very often, you know, we all say, you know, oh, I had a dream last night. Oh, was it a film? Oh, and then and sometimes you'll talk about a dream as if it's a film. You say, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's action. It started and then it cut to... We're all so immersed and infused with the language of cinema by now. I always remember my, my son said this incredible thing to me once, which blew my mind about cinema. He said, what did people... He was eight when he said this. He said, what did people dream about before there was cinema? <laughs> Such an incredible question. And that, that just tying those two together. And it's a really good question, and I have no idea. And what were their dreams like? Were they as cinematic or not? I mean, how influenced are we by cinema? And how much is us? But this is cinema that's influenced by dream. And, and as such, I, I really value it. Well, that's a very nice note on which to end. Uh, thank you, Tilda, for being here, for helping to make the film. I, I want to say that Simon and I, for Simon and I to be together in, under this roof is quite special because I, what's the number? I don't even know the number, but 1986, I don't know how many years ago that is, when Simon ran this place, he was the Obermeisterführer, um, of the cinema. Of the cinema. cinema. He, um, he, well, what else is there, Simon? Um, he, um, he asked me to program a, a, a season of short films, and the poster for that season is in the loo downstairs in my house, so I see it all the time. <laughs> so here we are again. That's a, such a long time ago. And it was, called, the, the, it was called Between Imagination and Reality, which is sort of close to what we, we were just talking changed, about. Have we? Nothing <laughs> changes. <laughs> Thank you. Happy New Year. Thank you.